I like the analogy of a trampoline. The deeper that you go in in a uh, with adversity, whether that's on your farm as a farmer or, or with a health uh, scare, the higher you can can potentially bounce off. So I think that it's all an opportunity. Every every challenge is an opportunity to change and improve health uh, or improve the quality of, of what we're doing and, and to ask better questions. That was Dr Max Gulhane and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. From wherever we are, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, recognising their continuing connection to this land, its waterways, the stars in the skies since time immemorial. We pay our respects to the elders, knowledge holders and to all the generations of First Nations peoples who have nurtured their unceded sovereign lands for over 80,000 years and continue to do so today. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, an 8th generational Australian regenerative farmer and in this podcast series I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host Charlie Arnott. G'day and welcome back to The Regenerative Journey and welcome to another episode. This one is with a doctor, Dr. Max Gulhane, uh, again from Albury. Last week you would have heard um, Jake Walkie and his farming exploits down there. The morning of the interview I did with Jake, I caught up with Dr. Max, um, where he's staying in town. Uh, I'll get to that in a minute though. Now, last week, as I was banging on about... No, now, depending on depending on where this, when this is going to slip into the... Into the World, I'm not sure if there's any tickets left to our farm tour. I'm recording this a couple of weeks out, so there's a chance that there's no tickets left. But if there is, get on. 13th of October, you've probably been hearing about it incessantly about the thing. We've got amazing guests. $150 a ticket. You get a feed, a good feed. I'm um, breaking down a beef sort of demo. Uh, uh, not a beast, a lamb, all sorts of cool stuff. Um, Cherie Gooding, uh, Stuart Andrews. Katie Zerner, Helen Lewis from Land to Market, Cole, Cole Phelan from um, Atlas Carbon. We've got cast a thousand, so get your tickets. There mightn't be any left by now, but I just sort of give it a quick plug. So last week I did um, read out a bit of um, a, a little message from Fraser at, at uh, um, Pogue who from Victoria, who was very lovely. He sort of you know, put out the call to see who who had some interesting tales to tell about their the inspiring actions from a uh from listening to the the podcast this one comes from kim edwards and i don't know if i've actually got back to kim about it so i'm a bit naughty i will between now and then um hey just sending you a message as you ask your listeners to share their stories with you i stumbled across you a few years back listening to alex stewart's low tox life i resonated with a lot of what you said in that podcast and it was early on my 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 venture of questioning how we are doing things and what impact it is having on both our immediate environments and the world at large I didn't start listening to your podcast in 2021, until 2021, and literally binge listens to catch up. That's awesome, Kim. Thank you. How I hang out waiting for the next episode. Um, here you go. You are a fantastic host. I love how casual but um, deep your conversations are and the variety of guests and from experts and pioneers in the field of regenerative agriculture to health and wellness advocates. Podcast has, podcast has not only educated me, but has motivated me to take action towards sustainable and regenerative farming methods, even in our backyard in Mackay in Queensland. Awesome. 
I applied some of the things I learned from your podcast to help manage our 30 square metres of grass in which we have geese and chickens as well as my tiny veg garden. That's great. We're literally overgrazing the grass. We were literally overgrazing the grass. It was really struggling and turning into a dust bowl with no grass for the geese to eat. And geez, they can eat some grass, those, those animals, can't they? And make some noise, but we love them. I applied rotational grazing to our tiny little yard. See, that it works. Isn't it amazing? It works for cattle, sheep, geese. Um, not surprising. Uh, you would not believe the difference it made. It was insane. We have the luscious lawn now and don't need to block off sections of the grass. Um, and yeah, off sections as the grass is so healthy, he was able to handle the grazing of the geese. This is fascinating. I, I grew up on cattle properties at you know, Dingo in Queensland and moved away from home to the big smoke of Rocky and then Mackay. My partner was born in Mackay, but has always loved space and land, and the land never left my blood. So we've that's great. So we have finally just purchased a small block. Yeah, Mackay, it's uh, nearly 20 acres. That is currently all under cane production, and we have big plans for restoring this land using regenerative principles. If it's been under cane, there's probably a fair bit of chemical residual residue there, I'd say. Um, but very, uh, a, very, yeah, but that can be dealt with. I've even completed a short course, short uni course on agribusiness and currently underway one, underway one in agriculture. Thank you for helping inspire me to get back into agriculture and feel more empowered to engage in environmental stewardship. And she's about to tune to John O'Fru. That was a couple of weeks ago. Kim, I'm so pleased that um, you got back to me. Well, didn't get back to me. You got to me and you sent your story. And you have clearly made some big changes in your life and your habits. Excuse me, and your behaviours. Um, that's awesome. Really love it. Anyone else who's got any more more yarns? There's a few episodes left of the podcast. So if you want to flick them my way, then please. Feel free, DM, email, whatever else, um, charlieart.com.au, contact at charlieart.com.au is where you might want to put it. Now, Max, Max, Dr. Max, um, he, he sports a bloody good hat, I have to say. Um, he's always got his little, sort of quite a, quite a square, um, flat-brimmed um, lid on him. Um, he looks the part with his big mo. Um, I'm quite envious of his mo. So caught up with Max there, oh, again, a couple of months ago now. Um, had connected on, on the gram, and I was loving what he's doing. Um, he's a big fan of the Angunis, um, the sort of the, an African um, breed of, of uh, bovine, a cow, of cattle, um, who are very sort of reasonably small sort of framed animal, um, and, but uh, very resilient, very good at um, uh, well-suited to rotational grazing in, in many different environments. Um, and beautiful meat, quality meat. Uh, he's he was. We just had a really really good honest yarn about. Um, well, again, his journey, the importance of you know diet and health. We talked about um, uh, blue blocking light. We talked about just uh, circadian rhythm. Um, lots of really cool stuff. He's he's down there in Aubrey, getting some experience with a wonderful doctor down there, um, who's very much on the same page and. Um, He's just—he's uh, got a big future. He's a young, young buck, young rooster, but um, I'm looking forward to following his his journey. Um, he's hanging around with with really good people, with people that um, other doctors and, and other health practitioners and other people in the industry, in food, in agriculture, and um, uh, he's helping pull together some really cool community events down there um, with Jake Walkie being one of them at the Walkie Farm. But um, look, you, I'm sure you're going to enjoy this one. Um, I love the fact that he's a doctor, and I say that because, you know, that's another connection back to food, back to farming, back to health. It's all the same stuff in my books and landscape. And here it is, Dr. Max on the Regenerative Journey. 
Well, Max, welcome to um, the Regenerative Journey, Dr. Max, and welcome to the office library slash yoga studio here in Albury, on the outer, on the outer suburbs of Albury. Thanks. Thanks, Charlie. Great to meet you and looking forward to chatting. So am I. Um, I've driven a few hours to get here, had a lovely sunrise, and... Um, Stood out the front, not sure if I was in the right spot. Went and drained the spuds behind the tree down the road because I thought that was a lovely, I don't know if it was a yellow box or what it was, an a apple box. And um, and here we are with a full day ahead of us, not not together, but I'm going to go and see Jacob um, this afternoon and <laughs> we'll just we'll just pretend that person's not, not playing, playing their garage. But... Um, so now, Max, I know you're, you're going to give us a bit of a rundown on, on your... Your journey, you know, some, some, somewhat chronologically, we don't. Doesn't matter if we spear off in all sorts of different directions. We like doing that anyway. Um, and normally, I'm I'm with a farmer or a, or a, or a, my guest in their happy place in their garden on a farm in their work place of work. Um, we're in your library. Library? Can we call it that? Office? Yeah. Office we're looking is- at. We're looking at. I'm not going to move the camera because um, if I do, I tend to knock it and it, it stops accidentally. But we're looking at a. Impressive array of books um, that uh, I'm assuming you've read every single one of them. You probably have, have you? You've read no, most I've of them. Read a couple of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what is it? So, so with the books, <clears throat> with the books in front of us there, and you're in Albury, which I, you've you've been here for how long now? Not that long. No. So I basically moved to Albury in February of this year. So we're in uh, we're in June now. So what does it mean to you? To be here in Albury, I, I guess, as a, a new chapter in your life, and maybe tell us n- now because we'll get to it why you, why you're actually in Albury. Yeah, so of all places in the world, you could be right. Yeah, now. well, my uh, what brought me to Albury was a career move, and I'm a general practice registrar, so I'm doing my training in general practice medicine, and I started that because. For me, it was the best way to integrate my interests of uh, holistic health. You can lean back a bit too, mate, if you want to get a bit cosier there. And, um, and lifestyle medicine. Um, and the idea is that I have been through medical school, I've been through uh, early uh, medical training, and what I've seen in the way that medicine is practised and the way that... Uh, the majority or the default approach to, to treating patients has been very much emphasised uh, one of medications um, and essentially the, the patient comes in, they, they get diagnosed uh, and then they get a script or they get another form of, of intervention and then you know, sent on their way. But none or the emphasis is not on what has actually basically caused that person's disease or caused their illness. So for for me, it it started a a lot earlier than that and it started with my own kind of health journey. And uh, I like to draw the analogy to the farmers is is because, you know, everyone before they change their behaviour or they change their approach, their lifestyle, um, personally or professionally, is they have to go through a a problem or an obstacle or a a challenge themselves. So for me, uh, I had been eating a, pretty standard Australian-type diet 
How how long are we going back? I mean, is this all your life to a, to a certain point? Yeah, this was so around my uh, early twenties, so late late teens, early twenties. I basically developed quite bad acne, and acne is something that normally is affecting younger adolescents going through puberty. Uh, quite quite uh, unsightly, very inconvenient, and uh, it was something that I was suffering from as an older adult in university. And at the time, I was doing a lot of cycling. I was pretty active. And like most of Australians, I was eating, uh, I'd have oats for breakfast or Nutri-Grain. I would, before a ride, I'd have an up-and-go. Special K because it's yeah, good for you. special K. I mean, all, all these cereals, <laughs> uh, eating a lot of fruit. Mm. And um, it, was, it was something that, that was happening. I had very bad acne. Anyway, I, I had my encounter with the, the traditional health system. Um, the basically the clinical or the approach to treating acne in, in medicine is you get started on various creams, they're topical basically creams to treat the acne, and then when that fails, because it isn't treating the underlying reason why we're developing acne, you get put on uh, oral antibiotics, and then you get put on you know, progressively heavier medications. There's a real na- a really nasty one. What's the nasty one? Yeah, that- isotretinoin or Roaccutane. Yeah, that that's uh, basically the, the nuclear option. When people have failed the earlier treatments with doxycycline and oral antibiotics, they get treated with a very um, heavy duty but very effective medication. But it's uh, it has other side effects. It's it? it's a synthetic uh, uh, vitamin A derivative. So um, what that means is that for young women, they're not they can't take it uh, if they if they fall pregnant while they're taking it. There's a risk of birth defects. So when if you're a young woman with very bad acne, you get prescribed a birth control pill at the same time. Um, you can basically recognise people if you're very observant, um, walking around school or uni, if they've got very, very dry chap lips, they're mm. always carrying a chapstick, um, very photosensitive, so um, any sun exposure can, can really cause sunburn. But essentially this medication, people are on it from you know, anywhere from three, three months to a year. Um, it will clear the acne up pretty, pretty well. But it's uh, yeah, very very a host of undesirable side effects. So through being a patient and going through this this journey as a science student, um, uh, never at any point was the the GP or the dermatologist talking about hey, maybe there are things in your lifestyle, particularly your diet, that you could change that might obviate the need for these medications. So uh, uh, going through that, and eventually I stopped the Rakuten because it was uh, again it was. It wasn't impacting my mood in the best best way, and it really allowed me to sit in the patient seat and really see. Uh, hang on, th- what we're doing for patients—not um, just acne, but a range of medical conditions—isn't in any way really getting to the core of the issue. Uh, a fast forward a couple of years, I was in medical school and uh, I was staying with a really good friend of mine and. Very smart guy and very very early early to the to the piece in a range of issues, and we thought we'd do a plant based diet. And what 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 was the impetus for that? Well, the impetus was was uh, uh, implementing what today is uh, still the narrative, which is that if you eat a plant based diet, you're going to be doing the right thing for your health. It's going to be the healthiest thing for you. This, as the narrative goes, it's going to be the healthiest thing for the planet. It's going to be the healthiest thing, uh, most ethically conscious diet. So, so this is 2017. We we 
ate mostly a lot of grains, a lot of pulses, a lot of whole grain bread. Um, and this was in another attempt to see if my, my acne would clear up. So, so this was... I was interested because <clears throat> so it wasn't like you were skeptical and oh let's give it a shot. You went, you know, looking at options and you went oh we'll give this plant based because because of the you know the narrative sounded like it would it sort of stacked up or there was some some good reason to do it. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and the the reason remains the same as today, which is from multiple angles and multiple directions we are being told that this is the the optimal human diet. So. That was the reason why why I gave it a go. Uh, to to cut a long story short, um, this amount of eating this amount of plant material and very little animal food, not only did the acne get worse, but you know, add in irritable bowel type symptoms, um, constantly getting colds, range of other just uh, discomfort of um, you know feeling low, all, all all the problems that are that are synonymous with not thriving, and. Uh, that was the, I guess, another springboard. So, I went through the med- mainstream medical system. Then I went in a self-imposed plant-based diet, and at that point, you know, you hit you hit a rock bottom, and your skin's bad. You you know, things suck. You're in discomfort. Like, okay, something's got to change. And and at that point, for me, it was uh, a transition to a low carbohydrate, ketogenic type diet. And that around the time, some of your listeners might might be familiar with a, a YouTube channel called Low Carb Down Under. And a lot of lifestyle doctors have got presentations on there and they explain how to implement low-carb and how it's helping a range of people with metabolic diseases like diabetes but also weight loss and uh, all, all kinds of, of issues. And when I implemented this low-carb, you know, animal-based uh, and a little bit of veggies-type diet, um, symptoms went down. And it was like, okay, this is a bit of an aha moment because, you know, having suffered for, you know, multiple years and not really been offered a solution by a trip my treating dermatologist or by my medical school curriculum because you got to remember i'm going through medical school at this point and nothing that i was um being taught had had any relevance to actually improving um my, my own symptoms uh so but this this self not this self learning and this self private study and then using myself as an experiment I, I was kind of finding a solution and um uh, that that basically progressed when I realized, hang on, well, maybe I'll try it without any veggies. Um, and at, the, at the, around the time, some doctors were experimenting or, or promoting a, a carnival or exclusively animal-based diet. Um, Dr. Sean Baker in the U.S., Dr. Paul Saladino. So I, uh, I tried that out. felt amazing. And for you know at least eight months, was a pretty strict carnivore. And that was like an extra gear above. So just on that one... <clears throat> a strict carnivore being um, meat. We that included eggs and dairy, or was it just meat? It was it was meat, uh, eggs, and dairy. Just no okay. no plant, no, no plants, plant foods, no honey, no fruit, nothing like that. And that was for eight months. Yeah, about about eight months. Did, did you measure your or your bits and pieces, your your numbers and your bloods and all that yeah, sort of stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, we can we can talk about that. There's there's a range of um, like physiological changes that happen when when you exclude carbohydrates and plants yeah, we'll from the diet. We'll get to that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but um, it's essentially it was a very very interesting, I guess, self experiment. And at the same time as as working in medicine, I realized that this dietary approach was not only possible to reverse you know skin problems like acne or psoriasis, eczema, but all kinds of diseases that I was seeing you know as a junior doctor and in the hospital. So at the I basically 
did what what you know a parallel education because like i mentioned to you none of this is being taught um in in medical school and or on on clinical rounds and uh finally i was able to at the beginning of the year stop general practice training and see patients and, and offer them this as a treatment approach uh as, as their treating clinician which was which is very interesting it's been amazing to be a privilege to be able to help people in this way based and, here in albury based here in albury and and there's a, a doctor called dr rob robert sabo who is a, a a lifestyle gp and one of the most experienced uh and proficient uh lifestyle gps in australia so and he's here he's in he's at the gardens medical group in in albury and he was the reason why i moved from queensland the gardens the gardens medical group yeah right yeah so yeah he was the reason why i moved down here and um it's been an amazing couple of months just learning of him, working, um, seeing my own patients and uh, connecting with the community. And you, you're, you're interviewing Jacob Walkie, the regenerative farmer, later. Um, we've, we've done events together. We're, we're building a real partnership and synthesis of, of health and regenerative farming because from my point of view, if I'm going to advocate patients eat a very low-carbohydrate, uh, animal-based diet, um, I think the onus is on, on me. Uh, and them to eat the highest quality. Food. And if you're you're if you're advocating it, then it's one thing to say you should eat this, that, and the other. But to be able to say, and you can get it down the road, or you go to this website, or you go to this shop. I mean, that's pretty important to make it to help them execute that 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 um, that advice. Um, uh, so, so in terms of your, do you, you say registrar? No. Yeah, yeah a registrar. So you've you've just finished. Um, how well, how long ago did you finish? Or is this, I guess, the last year of your kind of medical degree? How's that sort of work? So, so I graduated in two thousand nineteen. Yeah, from right. medical from Melbourne Medical School. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I worked in the hospital system for um for four years. Is that does everyone have to do that? It, it's everyone does at least a year or two in the hospital and before doing specialty type training. And I did a, did a bit of obstetrics and gynecology, um, but m- mostly emergency medicine wow. um, and general medicine, internal medicine. Uh, and that was what I was doing for about about four years. And then that helped you kind of get to a point of going, this is all a bit um, treat the symptom, not the cause sort of stuff. Yeah, and, and basically when you're in the hospital, when you're, when you're seeing a patient in the hospital, um, you're, they've already fallen over the waterfall. Yeah. So to speak. You're you're patching them up, you're dealing with the end, end consequences. Um it's not uh, and you it's not a preventative approach. You can't intervene earlier before they kind of go off the cage. I I like to think that the primary healthcare and, and, and GP type medicine, you're able to pull someone out of the stream before they go over the edge of the waterfall. Um so that that's the beauty of of uh general practice when you're giving people effective lifestyle advice that, that can really reverse their symptoms. Do you, were you in that, we'll get, we'll get back, to, <laughs> we'll get back to your birth in a minute. We'll get to it. Um, while we're, we're with this part of your life, so the, you were in that system, um, you know, ground truthing what you've learned, which would have been an experience anyway, because I guess theory and practice are two very different things. And also, um, there was an expectation of you, given you were fresh out of uni, you know, that there's a way to, there are questions you ask, there's a way to 
you know, your bedside manner and sort of the way you a procedure um, to interview and, and then, you know, diagnose and so on. Did you get to a point in that period, I guess toward, more, more towards the end, where you were asking questions that were very different to the ones that your doctor buddies were asking and was that, did at any, any point, was that frowned upon? Were you getting colleagues going, Max, ask them about their private life and their diet? Was that something you came across? Look, look, it happened a couple of times, but that is why I gra- gravitated towards emergency medicine because I would rather be on either end, either hyper-preventative, talking about lifestyle and general practices I'm doing now, or right at that point where people are presenting really, really sick. And you just got to get them better. Yeah. You just got to, yeah. like, throw everything at them. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, okay. and, and, and not be in that middle ground. And so that was a conscious decision. Yeah, yeah, and really, and, and emergency medicine is very enjoyable for that reason because uh, when someone's very sick, what you're doing to them, you, you're less likely to harm them because if they're they're already really really sick, what yeah. you're doing to them is uh, it, the risk versus benefit trade off is is better. And, and look, people are also more receptive to change when they're at that moment. And I had a, a great it is a great opportunity if someone's coming with chest pain, um, you know, and you know we're, we're sending them home for an urgent you know outpatient stress test. Uh, and they've got a lot of visceral fat. They've got cardiovascular risk factors. They're smoking a lot. It's a great opportunity to talk about things. And often I would, uh, often I would say, look, we need to do something about this. And um, here are some resources. Here are some YouTube videos to watch. Um, so it, it was a great opportunity as well to intervene and and, and help people with their behaviour change because that they're in a very vulnerable position, um, a very receptive position um, to to making changes. So. I guess that uh, and emergency medicine is a is a great preparation for general practice because you're seeing someone who who's showing up for the first time. But uh, yeah, to to answer the question, that was my way of, of I guess navigating the the discrepancy between um, I guess the orthodox medical um, approach and and what I saw was a lacking in addressing the fundamental lifestyle style, style factors and determinants of disease. So what was it, what age were you kind of when you thought you'd want to um, get into, well, I guess science? Did you do, before you went to uni, or was it in high school that you were thinking, oh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do medicine or at least science or kind of, at what age did you think, did you kind of feel you knew what you were going to start doing? Yeah, it was uh, probably not until, you know, middle or end of high school. Um, my my mum's dad was a obstetrician and gynecologist, so that was a kind of known factor in our family. And um, so I, I guess I, I finished school, and there's a couple of options, but um, I guess I, I I wanted to to try it out because I knew it was very very an interesting field, and it was a challenge, not easy, and I love challenges. So, uh, yeah, I, I went, graduated high school and did uh, a Bachelor of Science up in Queensland, in, in the University of Queensland in Brisbane. And you were in Brisbane at the time? Like that was, that was, yeah, that was that's where you were, yeah, yeah, home? Yeah. Yep. Um, and, yeah, I did, did three years of, of science and then did a year of, of lab research, which is an, another interesting, I guess, quite technical facet of, of, of science. So, and, so, and science because... Science generally was what interested you, or were you sort of thinking I'll do a bit of science and then I'll? Was there a bit of a plan? I was like, I'm just going to go to uni and do science because that sounds kind of 
comfortable. Feels yeah. Comfortable. It, well, it was, it was, it's a pathway to, to studying medicine mm-hmm. and it was kind of keeping my options open. And there was in the back of the mind, maybe I didn't want to do medicine, but science was a great way of, uh, of embarking on that journey without closing, closing other doors at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, um, science was that, were you in living, were you doing uni, like, were you in a college? Do that sort of, no, that, during yeah. undergrad, I was at home. Um, I was, uh, yeah, studying at, at UQ in St. Lucia in Brisbane. Um, and, yeah, after after four years, so it's a three-year undergrad and a year of uh, postgraduate um, lab-based research, I, uh, yeah, I uh, applied and, and got into Melbourne Medical School. So um, that was a, a change of, of states when I moved from Queensland. Down, what what down age were you, 20? 21, 20. Had you been was was that like a big move? Like Melbourne is like wow, this is like you'd been in Melbourne before. No, no, it was it was time for me. It was like this is something interesting, complete change of scenery. Uh, Four years, you know, studying and you know being in the hometown was a great and exciting opportunity to uh, to move. Did you get much work done? Did you be a uni student? (laughs) Yeah, well, I was I was staying in colleges at the time as a postgrad. Yeah, Uh, and yeah, I mean it's 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 a very fun. Mm-hmm. couple years but um uh, it's a full-on course and you know they call it drinking from the fire hose when you do you of uh, lectures in terms of your early medical school training so um it was very very interesting very very full-on um this is in back when you got to melbourne yeah once yeah. you arrived at melbourne yeah and how many is that six years so it's a four-year postgraduate degree oh, okay um i did it in five i did an extra year of public health where uh, I looked at um, essentially training in, in epidemiology and, mm. uh, and public health. I guess it's it's a broader picture look at, at, at health and medicine. So I guess that the the advantage of my journey is that you know I, I spent a year in the lab looking at under the microscope, and then I spent a year thinking about the big picture population health, and then so bit yeah right micro micro and macro micro the micro the macro mm. and then the clinical stuff which is the patient bedside. So I feel like everything's give it's given me a good perspective, um, and I guess an ability to think about the bigger picture, because there's so many smart people in medicine, so many very 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 intelligent people, but I don't always maybe agree that they're working on the most pressing or important problem. Um, that's fine. I mean, everyone has got everyone works on what they think is is useful and valuable, but I think that big picture topics like the whole of our population's health, obesity, the, the rates of obesity, you know, rising incidences of, of cancers and metabolic diseases. This, this is like the, this is the 80-20. This is the big, big picture problem that uh, as, a, as clinicians and medic, um, med, doc, medical doctors and scientists, as epidemiologists, the, the, these, this is the problem that, that needs to be tackled. And um, as much as I respect my colleagues who are, who are you know, obviously working on the day to day, just seeing patients, I think that if we're going to change and move the needle on the on a larger scale, we've got to got to think about the problem uh, at a more um, holistic um, way, um, and that I guess is how I've integrated or why I'm I'm interested in what you're doing, what Jake Wolfie's doing, what the regenerative farmers are doing, um, because that ties into to what we're eating as a society collectively, and that um, and we can talk about the other determinants, but the diet is a key determinant. Of how people are getting uh, sick, why they're getting sick. How do you, you mentioned about your colleagues? 
respectfully. Um, what, what, how, I mean, do you want to? Do you think it's important that they um, have the opportunity to absorb, be exposed to alternatives? Is it too late? Yeah, I guess it's an individual thing. I mean, what, what, does it frustrate you that, I mean, you, you, you're one of many people who've gone through the system and you've had your health challenges and you've, you've been, there's been a, some catalysts or catalysts for, for change. What hope do we have if, if we think that that's a good thing, that alternatives are good, good to know about at least? You know, how do we get other doctors to, you know, to consider those things? Yeah, and, and again, I want to make the point that um, I'm not advocating for uh, getting rid of, of a bunch of effective treatment options. I'm simply uh, emphasising or encouraging that um, colleagues focus on effective lifestyle measures, and, and that includes things like lo- lower carbohydrate options, things like talking about the circadian rhythm um, and our light environment, so it's it's a simply just an expansion and an emphasis on effective lifestyle kind of advice, not just um, you know eat 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 um, more carbohydrates and eat less and move more and then oh okay you failed you know here's your here's your prescription. So mm. what I think is that um, and I, we alluded to it earlier in this discussion is that people have to go through something themselves and and in my podcast where I talk to a lot of doctors, um, they invariably had their own health journey. That, had, that, that forced them to flip their paradigm, forced them to ask better questions. Um, and, you know, when, when you know better, you do better. So what I hope is that um, those, those doctors, a lot, a lot of doctors will realise things through their own health journey, but if they don't, then they'd be receptive to their patients talking to them um, and, and discussing and being open-minded about Perhaps things that work for their patients, but as you said, it's, it's like it's it's you know, and, and I, I know I mentioned every second interview, pretty much Charlie Massey's called the Reed Warbler. You know, it's tension events, it's it's moments of stress, it's it's health challenges or financial challenge or or whatever the challenges are. But the the low points, you know, that's where growth happens. That's where you know lessons are learned. I mean, I guess it's fair to say that you know. And this has not been critical of doctors because we we need them, and you know we've all no doubt had times when you know conventional medicine has saved lives um, or saved ourselves or you know prevented further disease and injury. Um, but unless those doctors that you know um, have their own personal health challenge, they're, they're, there's probably not many opportunities or many of them that will have any other reason to. Um, to change, and you know, maybe the this whole you know COVID thing was a good 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 example of that. That there was, you know, a lot of pressure on them to um, toe the line uh, in terms of you know what the what the you know departments of health and and so on were saying, and and unless they would experienced things themselves in and around the encouragement they were given. Um, they're giving their parents then trying to be as diplomatic as I can. Um, then <laughs> I don't know whether I need to be, but I mean that's probably like another example of don't rock the boat. Yeah, and 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 that's a good good point, Charlie. And let's be really really clear here. Um, what what we're suggesting is that, or what I, I believe is that, the way 
the uh, the pharmaceutical based model of practice that that emphasizes um, medicating, especially uh, chronic diseases or the the consequences of a disease process. Um, what what is th- th- those are, that impetus is is not necessarily coming from um, an impartial reading of the literature, or it's not coming from uh, an honest uh, desire to reverse our patients' diseases. It's a it's a it's a system of chronic disease management essentially, um, and it's a system of chronic disease management based on um, or reliant on the prescript pres- the prescribing of medication because that is profitable for certain entities, not because it's in the best interest of the patient. And you know, I talked to Dave David Bushel, an agron- agronomist, recently. David and, uh, Bushel. David Bushel. And, and, and where's, where's he at? He's uh, he's a regenerative farmer as well, uh, out, out of Tamora in, in southern mm. New South Wales. But he, he the the analogy between agriculture and human health is, is striking because the emphasis on simple of chemical inputs in in the process of raising uh, grains or, or doing monocropped agriculture is uh, is is continued to be pushed. But the reason is because it, it's an e- economic Im- imperative. An economic imperative to make money, and an economic uh, imperative by the companies that are producing these chemical inputs, um, and it and it takes that same uh, event that 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 change that stress to kind of ask the question: Well, hang on, can things be done done differently? I I, I like the analogy of a trampoline, and that the deeper that you go in in a uh, with adversity, whether that's on your farm as a farmer or, or with a health uh, scare. The higher you can can potentially bounce up, so uh, I think that it's all an opportunity. Every every challenge is an opportunity to change and and, and improve health uh, or improve the quality of, of of what we're doing, and and to ask better questions. Lovely. Tell me when you <clears throat> when you're doing your work in the emergency, and I guess I'm, <clears throat> this question is prompted by an interview I did with um, Dr. Anna Rubenstein, who was. Um, in the Northern Rivers, an emergency for some years. He 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 was Melbourne as well. Maybe he might have got, he might have got his his um, ticket down that Melbourne as well. But he he um, he. I mean, you might be familiar his work with rites of passage. Um, he was in a in that environment, <clears throat> and he noticed that, especially young men, and, and in some degrees young women, young girls, young their teens, were presenting having. Self harm. I'm not saying they, you know, well, self harm in that they made choices that weren't in their best interest. <clears throat> you know, they were driving too fast and being silly and kind of whether it was drugs or alcohol or whatever. <clears throat> and he sort of worked out, and he couldn't work out why. You know, it's like they kept on turning up. Maybe not well, some individuals, but in terms of the generation, there was just this trend. And <clears throat> and he um, he kind of then started researching rites of passage. You know. Um, Sort of things, and he sort of really worked out that, you know, in our environment, in our in our culture, because of such a mixed culture here, and it's pretty much widespread around the world. A lot of the rites of passage um, ceremonies and things have been they're not there anymore, and so there's not that you know going from boy to, to man or young man, young man to man, and, <clears throat> and so on. And so the 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 cultural rite of passage was to drive fast and that sort of thing, you know. And any 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 has since then developed a number of Programs for you know dads and daughters and dads and sons and mums and daughters and so on, <clears throat> which is fat, it sort of puts somewhat of a you know I guess a 
a Caucasian um, spin back on things in terms of our culture and how we can emphasise the importance of of rites of passage. Did you <clears throat> did you putting on the spot? But did you were there particular trends that you saw in that environment similar to what maybe Anna had experienced? Was there sort of frustrations that you go, why do these people keep coming in, or what 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 was your experience in that? I imagine pretty at times stressful um, uh, you know, experiences. Was there? Was there? How did how did that leave you when you left that? What 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 impression did it give you? Yeah, well, that's a great question. <clears throat> and I think the answer that I saw was that people who were coming into the emergency department for issues that were anywhere from pneumonia to uh, to heart attacks to a range of things that seemed unrelated, they almost invariably had extra fat. Around the chest, they had visceral fat. They were they were centrally, they had central adiposity. So what what what? And that was a very very interesting and consistent observation is that even if someone's come in with an infection or they had influenza or they were, they were having an asthma attack, more often than not they had a pre existing condition that medicine doesn't really make note of, which is that they simply were carrying that 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 central adiposity. What what that said to me is that. Um, the cost or the impact of, of uh, metabolic diseases in society from a health point of view is, is so much greater, it's massive, and it's not being talked about as much as it, as it needs to be. But uh, it, 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 was, it was striking because it meant that you know, if you're doing things right, if you're active, if you have low levels of visceral fat, if you're um, you know, living a healthy lifestyle, the likelihood that you're going to be need, needing the services of the emergency department um, you know, barring car crash or other kind of traumatic event, is so low, and 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 we're not. This link isn't being isn't being emphasised um, or, or drawn, but it, it's significant and, and it's there. the The other point that I wanted to make, because um, I, I, it's an interesting one that you raised about the rites of passage. Uh, maybe, and we can draw it back to this idea of community, and perhaps the the loss of more more traditional, small, close kind of c- community. Guidance and that this idea that the community is raising a, a child, and maybe if one father isn't able to provide a, a rite of passage for his children, there'll be an uncle, there'll be a, a neighbor or a cousin. Uh, I've talked to Jake Wolke about this idea of reestablishing the farm as the center of, of a community and the center of a community, not only from, from a food point of view, food production point of view, but also from, from a, a social point of view. And uh, the the loss of the community and maybe the loss of that that local um, contact with with other people with with the farm with um, a- everyone in that area is what maybe one reason why why that 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 doctor noticed um, people were were struggling with that that rite of passage but but it's definitely my hope that we can I guess find that reestablish the farm particularly the regenerative farm at at the center of a community and by providing that the really nutrient-dense food to everyone and, and having them actively aware of, of their food, um, the food, the provenance of their food. That, that is a key step in, in, in healing the society, not only from a physical or metabolic point of view, but also from, from a societal point of view in the way that, that you were mentioning. Are you familiar with Zach Bush's work? Uh, yeah, some, some of Zach, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean, he, you know, he talks a lot about biome. And and breathing, breathing, you know, breathing the biome, the 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 
I guess there's a physical kind of um, part to that where, you know, that the, there's, an, there's an energetic and there's a physical, but being in nature, grounding, you know, touching, absorbing, whether it's skin or breath or eyes or whatever, you know, that there's that connection that, um, you know, we're becoming a part of nature again. You know, the, 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 that connection is... Um, is critical, and I and I I totally agree that you know a farm is an opportunity for um, uh, a touch point with nature in so many different ways. Again, whether it's the food that's eaten, the breath that's taken, um, the 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 shit on the hands, you know, the sheep shit, the cow shit, the the you know, as as Zach talks about the breath of the eagle that's flown above and that finds its way into your 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 lungs. You know, there's epigenetic influence there that. Um, is undeniable, and so much more science around that now. That, um, you know, I don't think there's a better place for an individual, and especially children who aren't making choices about their whereabouts really as much as the parents. That there's no better place for them to be than on farm, in that environment, picking up the good vibes, picking up the biome, and having that you know that, those epigenetics expressed as 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 humans would. Developed and evolved to do, you know, we we have that adaptability because if we're in an environment, then we adapt to it, because that's the best way to survive, isn't it? You know, yeah. and so getting back to okay, we're in a civilized, so-called civilized world, uh, where most people are not near a farm. Um, it's it's not a big effort, and it is for some, and I totally get it. You know, socioeconomically, um, but at the end of the day, a trip down a road to a farm is 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 a um, I don't think there's any coincidence that the word, you know, pharmacy, you know, slightly changed, slightly different, you know, pH to an F. I mean, that's where, that's, that's, that's the source of our health. Yeah. Yeah, look, and from my point of view, the, the cutting-edge lifestyle medicine uh, and science is simply rediscovering or, or discovering the negative health consequences of removing humans from our natural environment, from nature from from the farm from the land from the forests uh, from all these these environments that we were um we evolved uh, fundamentally um e- exposed to and, and being amongst and you know look to be on i'd add i agree with that with those microbiome and the micro kind of biome influences of being in nature but i think a key one that that no one is or very few people are, are talking about is the the light environment and and the circadian environment and what I mean by that is that humans, um, prior to the invention of, of the electricity uh, in, in the late 1800s, we only had the sun uh, and some candles and candlelight and firelight in terms of, of our, our light exposure. And why that's important is because light plays a, a, a critical role in, in programming uh, our body's physiology. And it's a, a, a diurnal um, release of, of hormones that are critical to health, meaning that we need a period of, of sunlight, which has varies in its different wavelengths throughout the day, um, invisible and non-visible light. And then we need complete absence of light during the nighttime uh, to, to facilitate healing, to facilitate recovery, to, to have that, that circadian program that, that runs it, all our bodily processes operating normally. What what happened after um, 
we developed artificial light, um, and particularly in the past fifty years, and is that we we're sending signals to our body through our eyes that are, are profoundly um, disruptive to to our, our natural circadian rhythm. The the this idea of being on the farm and kind of being back in in nature is that you don't have to know the intricacy. You don't have to know about um, the the you know retinal ganglion cells that project to the hypothalamus and you know, the suprachiasmatic nucleus and circadian regulation. You don't need to know about the nuances of microbiome and um, you know how that varies. You don't need to know uh, anything about that. So the kid who is just carefree playing in, in, in on the farm, you know, wrestling a sheep or or just running around barefoot and then eating it and then eating it is uh, is doing everything that he needs to do or she needs to do to, to thrive from an optimal health point of view. They're, they're getting that sunlight into their eyes they're without sunscreen, without sunglasses. They're grounded. They, they're being programmed by by the, the, the microbiome that they're being in contact with. Uh, so so it's, a, it's amazingly sim- simplistic when we can, you know, you know scientists and, and, and cutting-edge life lifestyle type type doctors and health practitioners, we can talk about all the papers and we can talk about all the, the nuances of science, but the kid who's just having fun playing in the pond on the family farm is literally doing everything right and they're going home and eating the chops that that, that, that used to that grew on the, the sheep that lived on that farm. He's doing everything right from a health, health optimization point of view. And um, I say that because uh, we've we di- we're disconnected. Most people are disconnected from that, that environment. And the, the 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 health implications and the obesity and the visceral fat, um, and the cancer and everything is just a um, that we're seeing in, in the modern society is in, in my mind uh, a, a product of the accumulation of these different ways to remove us from our, our natural bio natural environment. Yeah, it's. Um, do you think that there's a, a, you know, um, at the risk of going down a rabbit rabbit hole, that there's a somewhat of an orchestrated approach to that, that that you know there, that there's individuals or people or organisations that actually looked at all this, going, you know what, if we can pay, keep people away from farms, I think we've got a chance to screw them over and make a whole lot of money out of them, well, because I, because they're sick. I think that's the, the key point, and is is money what you just said, and because no one is making money from. Uh, someone who is one healthy is eating food that they grew themselves is not needing to use chemical s- chemicals whether that's uh, prescription medications whether that's sunscreens um, they're not uh, have they're not profiting from a farm that uses you know biodynamic principles that is using natural fertilizers that is refusing to use um, glyphosate or roundup and other kinds of Herbicides and fungicides, so so that 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 that's not a profitable customer on on the scale of of industries that are currently profiting off people and and the ecosystems declining health. So uh, yeah, maybe maybe we could you know you can always get more go further down a rabbit hole, but I think that's <laughs> the, that's the crux of the matter is that those those people aren't good customers, and the people that are good customers, um, which is the most of what society is at the moment, they're, they're customers of a system that starts with uh, industrial agriculture 
it starts with um, high input monocrop um, grain production, but that's canola, but that's wheat, soy uh, in the US particularly. Uh, and it starts there, but then it continues into the processing of the food, processing of those commodities. Um, and I interviewed a guy called Texas Slim. He calls them false commodities because, you know, the listeners might already know that canola um, is was essentially a, a cultivar of, of Nebraska rapeseed, but specifically bred to have a low percentage of what's called a, a, a erucic acid, which is um, a fatty acid that's basically cardiotoxic in mammals. So they had to breed this this uh, seed oil seed to have lower levels of toxic um, erucic acid to then you know manufacture on mass scale to to, to basically put into the food supply and then uh, convince scientists and, and, and people that it was m- more beneficial for health than, than natural animal fats like lard and tallow. Um, so, so that is, so it starts in the, in the fields. It starts with the, the promotion of, of high input agriculture. It goes into the highly manufacturing, manufacturing of food. And then when people get full ill, um, you know, one decade, two decades, three decades later, um, you know, that, that is also a, a profitable customer for different, um, form of of corporation mm. essentially they're not selling chemical inputs to, to to the land they're selling chemical inputs to 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 humans and what it's i it's a lovely segue though isn't it from you know i mean yeah we'll get we'll, we'll, we'll grow the food that's going to make you sick and then we'll have the we'll have the so-called solution uh, to to well keep you alive not necessarily improve your quality of health just keep you alive longer so you're a longer you're a longer living customer client yeah Great business model. It is, and and there's a lot. I mean, there's lots of ways of thinking about this, but I mean, I I think one that's pretty intuitive is if you if you can imagine three steps, and at the bottom, you know, you have someone that's dying. On the middle step, you have someone that's surviving, and at the top step, you have someone that's thriving. Um, you know, medicine and uh, and surgeries, pharmaceutical pills, they'll get you from dying to to surviving, or they'll prevent you from dying if you are surviving, and that's why. Um, they're so beneficial for people who are acutely unwell, but um, they're never going to get you to to a thriving point of view. You can't you can't take pills, and, and that won't get you to a thriving from, from merely surviving. You have to lifestyle and diet will get you that that second to third step progression. So um, again, that's not a good customer. People on the top shelf, uh, stop step, are not a good customer for any of the, the businesses that we just talked about. And I guess it's my, my interest as a lifestyle doctor is to help as many people as possible um, to thrive and to, to avoid um, basically falling down that, that third step. Yeah, people on the top step aren't contributing to the bottom line at all. Um, tell me what you know about vegetable oil. Um, we just touched on it there, canola, canola being one of the more um, common ones in our in our. Well, not in our diet, but in 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 processed foods and in in um, modern modern diet, um, and the, the relationship between the amount of uh, vegetable oil in our diet and sunburn. Do you, do you know your correlations? With- yeah, yeah. So, so the history of vegetable oil goes back to the late eighteen hundreds, which with a product called cot- cottonseed oil, and Cotton seeds were being used in the south, deep South America. Um, they were a uh, byproduct of cotton production, and and enterprising businessmen were looking to value add 
to to their products and they were refining the cottonseed into oil. Around the late 1800s, it was being used to adulter the pork lard in in the, in the South of America to fill it out. Yeah, to, yeah. To, you could save money if you if you if you watered down the wine, so to speak, yeah. with uh, cotton seeds instead of uh, pork lard, which is obviously more expensive to manufacture. And then in the early 1900s, the Procter and Gamble Company, who you know is making a bunch of uh, care products, and they're now a multinational conglomerate. They uh, introduced a formal hydrogenated cottonseed oil product that they marketed as vegetable shortening um, called Crisco. Oh, yeah. And uh, they targeted housewives uh, and said, look, this is more hygienic. This is made in a shiny lab. This is better for you than this. What was it? It was vegetable vegetable oil. Yeah, it's hydrogenated cottonseed oil. Is it still still? So Crisco is cottonseed oil. Um, Well, it was was vegetable shortening. It was the solid product. The solid one, right, right, right. Essentially, um, that was in the early um, 1900s. And then over time, um, when uh, they they introduced more different types of of seed oils and soy was a a big one in the US, Um, but in Australia, it's basically been canola and sunflower they're the main ones but essentially these oils are their their hyper concentrations of, of a barely edible product so they're they're, <laughs> they're they're a seed that has to be um, ext- extracted and refined in in a process that involves um, you know high high pressure extraction deodorization degumming to to get uh, this oil that is then um, bottled and, and sold as uh, as an alternative or an ideal health product. It's replaced animal fat. That's the that was been the this transition over the past particularly fifty years. And it's the the impetus to replace it was in, in many ways um partnered partnering with science and there was a bloke called Ansel Keys who had a hypothesis that eating dietary fat is going to cause um heart disease. In people, um, it, was that an hypothesis, or that was a convenient business opportunity? Well, that that's uh, again, it's the the American Heart Association in, in the nineteen sixties basically publicised this proclamation that you should replace animal fat with seed oil in the form of soy oil, corn oil, or canola oil. What what not not a lot of people know is that they took funding, the American Heart Association, from Procter and Gamble. Mm, totally. In in the, the again the company that, that first released the, the Crisco and the cottonseed oil product, so I, I like to say that um, the decision to emphasise the seed oils in the human in the diet never came from uh, health. Uh, it wasn't science. In health, no. It yeah. was it was influence. There was economic imperative there from all kinds of players, including um, the produ- producers of cotton of the end product, but also of the growers. So there, there, there was, and, and again, it was an experiment. It was, and they, they admitted it was experiment because no one had eaten that amount of <laughs> omega six fatty acids, uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids in the diet before. It wasn't ever on the face of the planet. No, no. because you couldn't access a hundred no. years of corn and then process it enough to get oil out of it, and yeah. then cook your your food in that amount of hyper concentration of these oils. Um, seasonally, certain um, tribes would eat a large amount of nuts, which contained these type of polyunsaturated fats like the Kalahari Bushmen. But previously, the only most ready, ready, readily available source of fat were animal. Mm. And it's saturated fat. 
it contains very low levels of linoleic acid, which is one of the chief uh, fatty acids in these seed oils. So, so people weren't getting the amount of linoleic acid that they are getting now with this highly, highly processed, highly refined diet. And again, talking to um, the, the agronomist David Bushel, canola is the, one of the most fragile crops. It it totally. in, it needs so many different um, rounds of spraying with glyphosate, glyphosate with uh, all, all with, with atrazine, uh, yeah, um, at, it, because yeah. It, it it's simply um, it's not a robust crop. It, it's been you know babied a, 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 along, um, but it's it's uh, yeah, it's. I think it's a great epitomi- It epitomizes the industrial food system. There's so many reasons why growing canola is a bad idea, environmentally, and you know, all the way from a farm situation because it needs, it needs, you know, bare paddock. We used to grow a fair bit of canola, and you would, you know, annihilate the paddock with glyphosate and a few other additives, to sort of residuals. You then um, spray it before or after with um, uh, Treflan, which was a residual that stopped any um, um, narrow leaf speed, you know, like cereals and that coming through. Then you'd have your canola um, germinate, and then you'd, there'd be a, a, a series of sprays to keep the, the cereals out. And then you would have, I know, you and I've only heard this the other day slaters. So, slaters, um, uh, those little crustaceans that you, know, you see under wood piles. They can wipe it out. You can be wiped out with the um, cabbage moth. Um, there's a root disease. I can't think the name of it. There's so, yeah, there's so many different um, pests and diseases, so so to speak, that need to be mitigated against during that life cycle of the canola. And N- nature doesn't want you to grow. A no, it, field it's of yelling. Canola. It's yelling at that crop, and the farmer saying, "This is." You shouldn't be doing this, and it's throwing literally throwing everything everything at it, you know. And it's yeah, I mean it's well, yeah. The only one I'm being critical about right now is myself, who who didn't know better because it was like, oh, you know, it's X worth a ton. We knew the the recipe. We I didn't appreciate the chemical load that that was having on in all the imp, you know indirect and direct impact that was having. And it's it is a, it is a good example, isn't it, of of Pushing against nature, pushing shit uphill to get to a point where you're not actually produce. There's no offset. There's no like, well, we're gonna just bloody bugger nature up a bit, bit, but the end result is really good for humanity or mankind or whatever or our health. It's actually like we're creating and, and costs a bloody lot of money too. Big risks, you know. Yeah. A lot of lot of lot of input to get a product that is, um, uh, uh, somewhat. Well, I won't say killing people. I guess it is killing people in some ways indirectly. Back to the sunscreen, the sun, sun, uh, sunburn. Sure, yeah, yeah. So, so basically, ingesting um, a, a, an amount of polyunsaturated omega six fats uh, in the way that normal Australian diet or American diet um, would prescribe uh, basically alters our our ability to tolerate sun exposure. And we mentioned earlier in in the interview um, about isotretinoin or roaccutane. Which is again to treat uh, uh, acne or uh, doxycycline, which is an antibiotic. Both of those increase your photosensitivity, but both of those medications will make you more likely to sunburn. So it's uh, it's it's well known in medical literature that certain medications increase photosensitivity. Well, increasing having a high omega six um, diet rich in these seed oils also increases photosensitivity, 
and will make you more more likely to burn. And uh, the the probably is because these these polyunsaturated fats are being you know they're being taken up and being made part of your your uh, your skin your skin cells, and they're highly uh, volatile. They're highly prone uh, likely to be oxidized from a chemical point of view. That's what makes them so harmful to human health. So um, your your skin is simply therefore um, again more more likely to to burn because it contains um, these these more oxi- oxidizable fats in it. And you know it's something I notice when I cut them out of my diet, it, and inver- almost invariably people notice it when they cut seed oils out. And and, and we call it. I, I interviewed a, a a guy called Seed Oil Disrespector. He's from the states, <laughs> and uh, his his point, which I really uh, resonate with, is is that you've got to be basically have zero tolerance with with added sources of linoleic acid in the form of canola, sunflower, corn, soy oil, margarine, nutlex, because anything more than um you if you including any more than than what you would get from just natural whole food, you're getting too much, and you are going to increase your your risk of getting sunburn. Um, so sun sun resistance to sunburn is definitely something that we see when that omega three to six ratio improves when people cut these these oils out. Talk yeah, because I mean the, the the proliferation of sunscreens and which are uh, many are dubious in nature themselves. You know, like it's 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 adding fuel to the fire, isn't it? Really? Yeah, and, and look, let me talk about that because I mentioned sun sunglasses and sunscreen, and it, and again, it ties into this idea of we're supposed to be regulated by natural. Uh, uh, wavelengths of sun of sunlight. What happens when you block sunlight, either through uh, an applicable cream that is preferentially blocking UVB rays, or when you're wearing sunglasses that are preventing uh, UV from from entering your your retina, is that you're sending a confused message to your body. And in the case of of uh, sun sunglasses, and your your when when the sun hits your eye. Uh, you make a chemical um, that or a chemical signal to darken the skin, so the the receipt of um, sunlight through the eye um, and particularly early in the morning will precondition the sun for the ultraviolet light that comes later in the day. When you're wearing sunglasses, you are un you're not letting your body have a congruent message, so that it's unable to anticipate and therefore darken the skin. So if you're eating seed oils and you're wearing sunglasses, particularly in the morning. Then you're giving yourself a recipe for for getting sunburn and putting um, cheap crappy house paint sun sunscreen, sunscreen. on, which has got a whole lot of god knows what in yeah, it. Yeah, and and look, let's talk about that. I mean, Hawaii banned sunscreen because <laughs> it had uh, I can't remember the compound now, oxybenzones. They're basically a, a bunch of highly toxic endocrine disrupting chemicals. Mm. It was killing the reef. So they banned people from wearing oh, right. sunscreens because it was actually impacting. not because it was killing people. No, 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 because exactly, but. Uh, what that message is that when when again you're you're confusing your physiology, you're sending um, a, a very distorted circadian signal to the body when you're blocking um, certain wavelengths by applying sunscreen. So the answer is not to wear sun sunglasses and to wear sunscreen. It's to simply regulate your sun exposure based on your Fitzpatrick skin, your 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 uh, fairness and your latitude mm. and the time of the year. And the the process of getting early morning sun in your eyes and on your skin, which is predominantly red and, and infrared and non visible. Um, what what hours? We like in a normal day. What out? What pre pre? What time? So so UV. It depends exactly where you are. Yeah. But pre usually before nine a.m. 
Okay. Um, you're 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 mainly getting red and um, uh, especially at the sunrise. But UV UV shows up later in the morning, and, mm. and by the midday, you're going to get your highest UVB index. So the the act of getting that early morning sun prepares your body for the UV later in the day. Because we would have evolved without clothes to be exposed to that sunlight throughout throughout the whole day. That's fascinating, isn't it? Mm. With the eyes and that exposure goes okay, skin. Well, and 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 that's the point. I mean, we can. This is another whole rabbit hole, but the eyes, what's called it, it's like a neuroendocrine organ. And what that means is it receives different wavelengths of mm. light and it translates that, that into hormonal signals that program yep. our, our sex hormones, program our thyroid hormones, program our metabolism. Um, it, it, it's all linked to cues from, from the sun. And I did a podcast series with Dr. Jack Cruz and he uh, really emphasizes these points. Jack Cruz? Yeah, Dr. Jack Cruz. Um, and he he's illustrating the degree or emphasizing the degree to which human biology relies on um, correct s- s- light signals. Um, and, and I guess that is, I guess, uh, maybe my invitation to other um, doctors or practitioners in the lifestyle space is to, yes, diet's imp- important, but it's not the only facet of, of optimal health. And I, I like to say to, to people, you know, we've got to look after your food diet and we've got to look after your light diet. Light diet, yeah. We've cool. got to get rid of the, artif- the artificial food and we've got to get rid of or mitigate the artificial light. Well, that's another thing too, isn't it, the, the, the light source. We are, you know, living in a so-called modern age and we are, you know, we rely on lights, you know, more, more or less. Um, there's, I was just talking to Angelica, my wife, the other day we did a little interview for the first se- um, session of the of the um, of this season and we were in the office at, at home at Hanamino on our farm and I know years ago when we built that office we put in um, a particular fl- fluoro light which was, it's like argon, argon or something. There's a, there's a t- particular brand or, or type that is not your, your um, it's not the one that, Generally, it's put everywhere. It's a particular one that's supposed to not zap you. Um, I just can't think of the name of it now. But it is the science around that is it's not as draining as your your normal ones. But that's something I guess we can't escape the fact that unless we just want to have, you know, a fire in our house and use candles, that you know, lights are a convenience that we're sort of we're used to. But it's, it's, it's as you say, it's the management, the management of it. Yeah. And then you you wear your little nighttime glasses. Yeah. yeah. So. Charlie, it's about mitigation. Mm. Um, it's about mitigation of the, of the light environment. And there's lots of things that we can do, but essentially cultivating or creating a low-light environment after dark is is helping to give a congruent, appropriate circadian signal to the body. Because mm. when the, the sun goes down, our body's expecting an environment that's absent of light. And that's part of the process of, of releasing a key hormone called melatonin. Um, and melatonin is involved in, in, in not only initiating sleep, but in, in terms of repairing the body throughout the sleep sleep cycle, so if we have a sleeping in a room that we're exposed to to light, particularly um, blue blue light, which is what is being emitted from devices from it's LEDs, yeah. um, you're you're directly inhibiting your body's ability to make your melatonin. So you're 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 preventing your body from recovering properly. So mitigating is like is wearing blue light blocking glasses that have a tint on them that block blue wavelengths. It's about getting a low light environment using candles or red close to the ground rather than overhead. Um, These are all measures that we can do to, to improve our, our health. 
and this is a great opportunity to talk about what I think is is important is that the farmer has all the tools in its toolbox to live and op- optimally. And what what I mean by that is they have they they're in an environment they're on the land they can see the sun from rise to set they can um, eat a really high quality diet if they're which is rich in, in high quality animal food from from their own produce and um, but many farmers that I've talked to especially conventional farmers you know they still go into town and they're buying uh, meat from which that's come out of the abattoir that they don't know the provenance of. They're still, you know, eating out of the cupboard. They're, they're ha- eating a lot of grains. Um, so it's it's sad to see, you know, farmers who are metabolically unwell or carrying extra visceral fat or suffering medical problems because it, for me that they're, they're so close. They're literally on the in the right in the right spot that they need to be, but yet they're still so far away. It's not like they're living in a cubicle in the middle of Melbourne. You know, that they they're so close, but again, they're so far away. So just like. I like to think that you, you take lifestyle advice from a, from a doctor that is himself in is healthy and is in good physical shape. Um, again, it's like I'd like to see more farmers be physically healthy um, because they they are they are so close and they ref, they're going to reflect from what they do if they manifest and they um, exhibit um, optimal health and and live an optimal lifestyle that is going to ripple out and, and help everyone else in their community. It, there's a real gap between, and I was the same when I was younger and I was farming conventionally. I was younger and I was fit. You know, I'd go to the gym every day, a little setup at home and running and all sorts of stuff. I was a pretty fit rooster. And my diet was, was okay. Like, oh, I felt like I was having fresh food, but a lot of processed crap and, you know, beers and all the other stuff. But, and then as one ages and that your diet changes a bit and, and, and exercise profile, but nonetheless, there's a gap. As has been my experience between what I did in my on a farm and the, the stuff I did and the food that I grew or the commodity that I produced and um, the connection with human health, there there was no there was very little connection at all, and the responsibility I didn't feel any responsibility to you know in terms of the quality and where that food is going to go. So it, it's it is widespread, and I've been part of that system. Um, it is. You know, an ep- epidemic of of ignorance, um, and that's fine. That's what it is. This is not, you know, being critical of anyone who's not doing anything regeneratively or whatever. You know, still conventional farming. It's just the way it is. And you know, I've as I said many times, there's no way I would have baked a loaf of bread with the wheat that I grew, because it, it would would was would have been terribly bad for me. Not that I probably even knew that then, but there's. I'm glad I didn't. You know, because I knew all the shit I used to grow. And it's getting worse. You know, the glyphosate there. Putting on wheat now and other cereals for desiccation, as a matter of course, is is horrifying, you know. So, um, but there's you know, and, and as you say, like the, the the irony is they're in they are potentially in the best situation to grow their own food. You know, they're in that environment, and but you know, the less chemical they use and the more food they grow for themselves and others of quality, then it's somewhat I feel an exponential, you know. Improvement in 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 potential improvement in health because you know the chemicals are less, the exposure is less, the air quality is better, the food they're consuming, and then it's all that it's all that biomass. And if you don't do it for, as I say, you know, farmers they might not do it for themselves, but it's their kids who can't make those decisions about. Oh, dad's spraying around the house. Um, unless the mum is switched on enough, 
and I know plenty of um, mums who have who do this and and have done it. Um, they leave for a couple of days, take the kids, and they leave, they go off farm, and they 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 just go. I I know, and this is a, this is a sad but real thing, and and again, it's everyone has their own sort of situations and and financial and and, and social and whatever reasons, but you know, I know plenty that are. Um, in those situations, and they can't. There's not much I can do about it, you know. But they know innately that being around when that chemical's being sprayed is not a good thing for their kids, and they go away for a couple of days, and they'll come back. Uh, it's 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 hor- it's horrifying. But again, it's 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 part of you know the Australian and the world um, conventional farming um, re- regime, unfortunately. Well, well, the addiction to processed food. <clears throat> well, isn't it? It is an addiction. Yeah. Is mirrored. By conventional agriculture's addiction to chemical herbicides, mm. um, pesticides, and fertilizers. I mean, they're, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. And what's making us sick for what we're putting in our mouth, that, that, that process begins with a farmer who's getting their spraying rig out, who's, who's bought you know, 100 litres, hundreds of litres of glyphosate from, from an industrial um, agricultural company and then starts spraying. Um, that that's where the, the process begins, and it's manifesting in in the clinic with people that I see fatty liver disease, with visceral fat, with um, with with, with ischemic heart disease. What do you see around here? What are you seeing? You've only you've been here four or five months now. Is are you are your first time in a country practice with potentially a different set of patients that than than certainly from the emergency ones, but any any sort of other you know situation you were experiencing in Melbourne, what are you, what are you seeing here? You're going, oh, there's a lot of people coming with cancer, or a lot of people coming with, I don't know, things that you might get suspicious about in terms of you know exposure to chemical or exposure just being on farms in this rural environment. Yeah, that that's a good question. Um, I, I haven't noticed anything specifically to to kind of really make a, a, a mental note of. The, but to answer the question about contaminants and, and farm chemicals, the it's well known that exposure to certain chemicals, especially uh, atrazine and a range of other um, chemicals like that, cause endocrine what's called endocrine disrupting effects. What what that means is that um, the hormonal system that again we talked about in terms of was coordinated by light signals. That is a very very finely tuned orchestra, and when we ingest certain chemicals like atrazine or like uh, phthalates, which occur in plastics, people heat up plastic meals, that can act like estrogen in the body. Mm. And that can cause the feminization of men. That can cause testosterone level um, and the ability of testosterone to work in the body to, to, to be disrupted. So um, it's, it's a known thing, in, especially in the US and in, in the Midwest, where they spray heaps of, of chemicals and, and it, Enters the groundwater um, these residual residual chemicals that um, you, you you're ingesting these these levels um, at, probably at, at levels that are permissible by um, uh, especially the re- in the US by regulators, the yeah. by the regulators um, that uh, is having a meaningful impact on human health. Oh, it's funny to say that. Well, not funny. It's interesting to say that because I was listening to a little bit of um, uh, um, Robert Kennedy. Um, junior today um, and this morning, and he was talking about atrazine in the environment and experiments with frogs and 
of 100 frogs um, in water with with atrazine, with a, I'm not sure what sort of dosage, but um, that all of them uh, were impacted um, in endocrine dysfunction and all of them were their morphology and their, I guess their gender morphology was changing. And 10%, 10% actually um, revert, well, not reverted, they, they, they switched to a female of the males. They, they switched to um, uh, fully functioning females that could produce eggs. Like that, and that, 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 that's what atrazine did, that man-made chemical that's being sprayed on um, plenty of, plenty of um, crops. Yeah. Fascinating. It's fascinating. It's, it's just horrifying. It is. Um, and I think the two biggest impacts of, of and kind of threats to fertility and, um, and reproductive health are these endocrine-disrupting mm-hmm. chemicals and the light environment. And, and there's studies showing that exposure to artificial blue light um, will, in, will bring on precocious puberty. Do you think there's something in that? And he, and, and, and he, he um, Robert Kennedy Jr., just kind of didn't allude to it. He said it, but he wasn't making any bold statements that, you know, processed food, chemical in our food, chemical in our water, the light environment or the sort of the, um, our, the body's response to the light and food and that, that stimulus, that input of light and food is somewhat um, impacting general. Is that mine? Oh, what's that doing? Ah, um, <laughs> I'll have to stitch that together in my video. The, that, um, that disruption is potentially the cause of a lot of what we're seeing, this gender, um, I can't I don't even know the right word, gender, I has it as like confusion, I guess it is. Dysphoria. Dysphoria, that's the word, thank you. Is that, do you think there's something in that? I think, I mean, a, there, there's so many, there's so many possible um, inputs, but. Mm, yeah, or, uh, or contributing factors. Contributing factors, but. Uh, I would definitely um, think that based based on the the basic science knowledge that we have, and the fact that um, mammals are equally you know, impacted, that these responses to chemicals or light exposures are conserved across, across mammals. Mm-hmm. That I don't think it's a long bow to draw that um, that that these effects are valid and, and having um, negative impacts in humans. Definitely. What about so? Just one on that. So fertility. Um, in males, females, the 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 light component, or the um, I guess you know hormone dysfunction disruption is going to impact um humans and other animals, of course, but in this case, humans' ability to have babies, to reproduce. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I mean, anecdotally, you hear people you know, having difficulty. Uh, well, and, isn't isn't it like the, the fertility? Yeah, male, the you know, semen counts are down, or the viability of of, of you know, males um, is 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 reducing. I mean, this yeah, yeah. Well, what what's been accepted is a, a normal reference range for uh, male sperm counts. Uh, I I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it's about it's been a process of moving goalposts. And <laughs> what 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 has become common is being normalised because what is now Common is not is not normal, but it, it's common. Yeah. So um, again, they're, they're lowering the bar. Yeah, exactly. That's mm-hmm. what 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 the process is. 
Um, and it doesn't seem like there's a big impetus to collectively address or investigate the causes of, of, of why that, that's happening. But um, I think in Australia, in the US, around the world, um, the, the fertility of humans is definitely being impacted and um, for, for a variety of these reasons. But processed food and artificial light, <laughs> the, the, those two key, they're two key causes. I, I definitely agree with that. Um, mitochondria. Tell me about them and their impact on, well, the impact on them of um, light. And I asked that question because I remember reading or seeing something about it recently there. You know, you go to a hotel and the little red light's on in the TV or the little light's on for the fridge or whatever else and you've got these little, you know, you're supposed to be, or even those bloody green ones on the roof where the fire alarms are, mm. you know, and we're, we're all trying to sleep and that red light being, um, or, or any, I guess, source of light impacting mitochondria function because it they they need they're more they're more plant than animal, aren't they? Well, well, they were originally bacteria. Mm. So in the the primordial soup, uh, there were different single cellular organisms, and billions of years ago, one uh, engulfed another one, and essentially uh, in, enslaved it, uh, and our cells contain these. Uh, organelles, which is uh, which are called mitochondria, and the mitochondria make energy mm. uh, um, uh, amongst a range of other functions. They make energy for that for that cell, um, and you know you've got trillion cells in, in your body, um, and each of them contain, um, depending on what type of cell they are, up to thousands of of mitochondria um, that that are making energy for for that cell. So um, they they are they're, they're originally bacteria and. What 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 I believe and what I think is a very is the optimal strategy for uh, health is to look after your mitochondria because if they are working properly and they're making energy efficiently, then you can have a healthy organism. And this is called a, a, a bioenergetic uh, etiology, but mitochondrial bioenergetic etiology of disease. Essentially, when the mitochondria stop working or they accumulate mu- mutations. Then um, the cell, the collective ability of the cell to operate, starts reducing, and the cell starts dysfunctioning. Uh, and then, when enough cells are dysfunctioning, you, you, in specific organs, you're going to get disease. So, what what I think that um, people, and this is a very very granular subcellular way of thinking about health, but what we do influences the health of our mitochondria, and whether that's the diet or whether that's the light environment. They they also act as a form of sensor. They they can they sensing the environment because they have um, proteins in their, their their membrane that act as as ability to sense light. So when when we're exposed to sunlight, for example, when we're lying outdoors, the the mitochondria make in there in themselves they make melatonin, which again was that, that chemical that is this antioxidant chemical. So if we're never exposed to sunlight, um, and instead we're under artificial blue lights the whole time, or we're covered up the whole time. Mm-hmm. We're not giving our our um, our little engines the ability to make that chemical that keeps them humming along nicely. Um, imagine if you never oiled your oiled your your engine in your car. I mean, pretty quickly it'd start gumming up and, and having issues. So so they they need light and they sense light in, in order to to operate properly. The 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 light also impacts health from um, again from from the ability to make melatonin in your pineal gland which is basically living kind of just behind the eyes. 
uh, and at night time, in the absence of light, in the absence of the blue and the green wavelengths, that is also how the body makes makes melatonin. So um, the, this this idea that if we're exposed to an artificial light environment, you're not allowing that body to recover. You're not sending the right signals for, for, for the organism to thrive. Um, and, and we haven't talked about it uh, uh, at all, this conversation, but um, sources of n- what, what are called non-native electromagnetic fields are also a form of non-visible light. Um, and they, they come from things like Wi-Fi and, mm. and, and, and other, um, uh, uh, other sources of radiation that we didn't evolve with. And, and they get... Um, they they also impact human health in a negative way. So they're just disrupting uh, the hormonal disruption. Um, uh, I guess also the resonance of organs and all of the you know cardinal frequency stuff that goes on in our bodies. Yeah. It's it's buggering it right up. Yes, and there's more and more. There's more layers seem to be thrown on top of it. You know. Every year, every two, you know, there's another thing coming out. Five G is the recent, exactly, recent and and the mechanism. Um, because uh, I want to be really clear here, because it's very easy to loop or, or lump this idea of five um, uh, G in with a whole bunch of wacko kind of health ideas and pseudoscience. But there's established um, biochemical patho- pathology here, which is these frequencies cause the voltage gated calcium channels. Um, in cells to remain open, uh, and that basically triggers a process of of inflammation. Um, and listen, I've, I did a really great episode on this with with Carrie Bennett in, in my podcast, um, Regenerative Health, and she explains exactly that when you're being constantly exposed to to sources of non-native EMF like Wi-Fi, you're generating an, uh, um, a con- consistent, unopposed inflammatory signal that puts stress on the mitochondria, um, and that additional stress. Um, if it's un- unresolved or unabated, will cause mitochondrial dysfunction, and then again, the the mitochondrial etiology, uh, bioenergetic etiology of disease. Doctor Doug Wallace, you're going to manifest disease because your mitochondria aren't aren't working as efficiently. So who is that? I'm just going to put these in. Doctor Doug Wallace. Doctor Doug Wallace. He, he is that the person you interviewed? No, no, no. Doctor no, Doug Wallace. He's a he's a physician from the US who works with the Philadelphia Children's Hospital, and he's done very very decades of work. On, on mitochondrial diseases, um, but his his perspectives about um, uh, mitochondrial dysfunction um, form the underlying basis of, of a lot of our understanding of of um, of I get what are called complex diseases. So mm. this idea that you know people are getting uh, neurodegeneration, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, um, they're getting diabetes, they're getting all these problems, and we can't pin it down to one gene. Yeah. So it's the mitochondrial dysfunction that's able to explain. Why why people are getting uh, getting sick and and I, I mean I we we talked about um, paraquat um, with on, on my previous podcast. Um, there's emerging evidence that paraquat is associated with Parkinson's disease as well. So and whatever the mechanism is, there's all these converging and uh, aggregating environmental stresses that are um, that are having meaningful impact on human health. And the the way I think about it is the more that you stack on top of each other. The sooner that you're going to get sick, and the sooner that um, uh, the wheels are going to fall off. Well, it's also like the harder, also the harder it is to avoid it. You know, some of these things, you know, and, and again, f- f- our farmers have somewhat of a choice of the the 
the safety or the cleanliness of the environment. But for someone living in an urban area where, you know, you've got um, different frequencies, you've got neighbours with Wi-Fi, you've got um, councils, uh, you know, in some cities the uh, councils are now putting in 5G light light fixtures, um, uh, even the um, smart boxes, smart electricity meters, um, council spraying glyphosate all over the verge. I mean, we're really it's, – it's quite challenging for people to, especially in the city areas where there's less control of their environment, for them to remain relatively healthy, which, again, spears us back to, well, get out of there. Where are you going to go? Go to a farm, which is easy to say and not and harder to do, but – you know, even just getting out once every couple of weeks to a farm, you know, is is a good thing. Or even just getting outside, or just getting back to your point of you know, mitochondria and and um, their function. So, if someone was outside, I'm, I'm simplifying things somewhat. If someone was outside for more in the day, and preferably before nine, so they're you know not getting all the UVs. Would it be a simplific oversimplification to say they would sleep better at night? So they 100% would sleep better. Right? Yeah. Because oh. the, the signal to release that melatonin from your pineal gland, which yeah. will make you sleep like a baby, that signal starts early with early morning sunrise. And is there kind of a, a general period of time that, you know, if you were to spend 20 minutes, is it 20 minutes, is it an hour? I, I don't, I'm not getting prescriptive, but just like, you know, is is there a period of time that's, that's optimal or preferred to, to sort of, Ensure a better night's sleep, if we can say that. Yeah, I, I would say sunrise. If you can At catch sunrise. the sunrise or any time in, in the early morning. For a period of time. Yeah, any I mean, any, any is better than none. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the sun exposure that you'll benefit from is the sun exposure that you'll get, mm. the healthy sun exposure that you get. So um, I, I make it a practice of mine to, to wake up, try and get outside first thing, take my shoes off, um, and get that program, get that circadian programming from the sun. Uh, and that will set set you up for a great night's sleep. And Are you cold plunging, cold dipping? What, so, so yeah, I mean, and look, we can we can talk about different ways to optimize mitochondria and, and health practices. But yeah, cold immersion is is one such uh, one for for a variety of reasons. Um, there, there's a Murray River down here, not too far from me. Pretty so, fresh this time of year. Very very fresh. Actually, it'll be be colder come um, in spring, mm. coming out of the mountains. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, look, it's uh, that's your challenge. Max. Yeah. You have to go down there. <laughs> yeah, as the snowies are melting. Yeah, yeah. But um, uh, do you do it? Do you go dipping? I do, I do. Yeah. I haven't been lately because I've uh, yeah. But I, I will definitely get back in there. Uh, I want to make the point that the UV is not harmful. Yep. Um, and again, we can talk about these narratives like uh, to do with you know saturated fat and and red meat and. These, this idea that exposures that we would have had for our, the duration of our, our evolutionary past, you know, suddenly in the past 50 years are killing us. We, we didn't have the UV index uh, told to us every day on the news, did we, back then? Not, not at all. <laughs> and, and again, it's like the, the UV um, is not – the midday UV is less of a problem if the skin's been preconditioned by yep. that early morning sun exposure. Yep. So the fact is that people aren't um, developing their solar callus. They're not ex- – gradually exposing their skin. They're not doing it in, in a way that is facilitating or congru- congruent with optimal health. They're going out in the midday. They've eaten a heap of seed oil um, because that's the standard uh, Australian or American diet. They're getting roasted. Um, 
Uh, I mean, it literally, yeah, it's almost like the. It's almost like I, I look, think about that when I first sort of started reading about this. Is going well, it kind of makes sense because it's like the oil. You 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 cook things in oil. It, it it has that kind of thing. It's almost like, and you know, is a heat source. The oil heats up and it starts doing shit and it changes its molecular structure anyway, and it burns or cooks. You know, the food that's in it. It's like not. It's, it feels not dissimilar. The more oil you have in your skin, and I'm simplifying. It's like that's just setting it up for a burn. Yeah, it's a it's a more re- reactive, uh, reactive oxidizable yeah. Um, yeah. fatty acid. And and look for the clinicians and doctors in, and the scientists listening. Um, make make sense of this paradox. The the melan people with melanoma and and skin cancers are overwhelmingly are vitamin D deficient. So if if the UV um on its own was sufficient to cause skin cancer, why are people with skin cancers having mm. low serum vitamin D when you need UVB to synthesize vitamin D from 7-dehydroxy cholesterol uh, on your skin. I mean, it doesn't make sense. So at that point, again, we need to ask better questions. Mm. Um, and there's obviously something missing in, the, in that narrative that simply mm. getting UV, UV exposure is going to cause skin cancer. Um, and again, if you, if, for those listen, listening who are interested, check out my Jack Crew series. Um, where we we go quite deep into into exactly um, why that is a, is is fallacy or why it doesn't stand up to scientific scrutiny. And the Jack Crew series is on YouTube or YouTube and YouTube. yeah yeah YT and uh, my podcast, the Regenerative Health Podcast. Yes, which um, we will put in the show notes as well, which is awesome. Um, now, when we got here, um, talking about I guess food and meat, we love our meat. And Gurney, you we had a bit of quick chat of that before we went to air. You want to talk about your experiences with, um, with them and why that was int- of interest to you? Yeah, yeah, the, uh, I'm really passionate about the Nguni and w- what they are is they're an African tribal cattle breed, so they're derived from um, quite ancient um, uh, cattle bloodlines that migrated all the way down um, from uh, northern Africa through the Congo to down to Southern Africa, to South Africa and Namibia. And uh, they are incredibly robust and inc- incredibly hardy and they actually, and they taste, taste amazing. So uh, essentially I was in, in Queensland and I went to a farmer's market and I, I met a farmer who was selling regenerative meat and I got talking to him and he told me about his cows. Oh, well, we don't need to tick treat them. We're in really, really damp, humid conditions here in Queensland. We don't need to tick treat our animals. We don't spray anything on them. We don't drench them. We don't do anything to them. We just graze them regeneratively, um, and here, here they are. Do you remember who that farmer was? Yeah, he's a, in, the name uh, is is Bryant East uh, Bryant Usher. And he's, oh, Bryant! He's, he's uh, from Eastwell Farms. So, so Bryant was selling selling this regenerative meat, this beef that tasted absolutely amazing, and it wasn't around that time I'd, I'd, I'd met Jake Walkey on a visit to Albury. And uh, and uh, we talked about this idea of animal welfare being contingent upon using an animal that's fit for purpose, that's adapted mm. to its to its environment. And if you're requiring to give it all these inputs just to survive or to live, then you're actually not being an optimal steward, or or you're not taking care of that animal from an ethical animal ethics point of view. It's just like if you're breeding pugs and with a with a snout that's this long and they've all got sleep apnea. And they, you're not. Are you really doing the right thing by them? You're not. So so that was why the breed was so attractive. And you know, 24 hours after I talked to Jake, he bought a bull uh, from this gentleman, a, a, 
uh, farmer Edwin Rouse, who's not far from here near Gundaroo. But essentially, these Nguni cattle um, are able to thrive on a diet that would be uh, unpalatable to most British breeds. He, you know, there's stories of these cows being 18 or 20 years old, and they've had 18 calves, mm. and not one of them has ever required um, pulling or, or being um, forcibly, you know, helped out of the pelvis. So they're very easy to to breed. They they'll eat anything. They taste amazing. That's the main criticism that you get from people thinking, oh, you know, this is going to taste like an old boot. It, you know, it's eating <laughs> roughage. But no, that that's a misconception. They taste amazing and they they, they look beautiful. So uh, I'm I'm really passionate about the Ingunis and uh, really looking to help raise the profile of this this beautiful cattle breed um, and hopefully getting um, more more people, more farmers uh, farming them. The the interesting point that um, Edwin made when I talked to him a couple of days ago was that the, the, their use as a tool of land regeneration is maximised because they're not being sprayed or being um, uh, injected with any kind of chemicals. So the dung beetle is m- better able to thrive because there's no chemical in, a, in that cow's digestive tract. So the potency of the tool to regenerate the land is increased when there's no chemicals used. And he moves them every every uh, every couple of days or every day. Um, and again, it's that, that, that process that you know so well of, of um, regenerating the, the, the land and using the cows as a tool of land, land regeneration. So, um, and, and that's, that's from a, a farming point of view, but from a, a health point of view, um, I talked to, the, uh, talking to a range of clinicians and one of them is Dr. Sean O'Mara in the States and he's doing MRI scans on, on people uh, and identifying visceral fat, which is the fat around the waist and identifying um, what's, what's known as fat in the muscle myocytosis. And when you MRI someone, you can see fatty infiltration in that muscle. Um, what that, why that's a problem is because that's associated with mortality or, or early death because it implies that you're, you're, you don't have um, good muscle strength and it implies that you've got this inflammatory situation going on in, in your body. So what the question then is, why are we eating animals that are floridly um, have fatty muscle? And that's what a, a grain-fed wagyu is. It's got fatty infiltration within. The it's muscle. almost like this. You see some of those um, photos of the of a of a cut through, and there's almost, and it probably is in some cases more fat than muscle. Yeah, it's it's actually alarming. This goes what what's holding that animal up? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it, it, I mean, it looks it looks like a metabolically sick animal. That's a metabolically sick human if they had that much amount of fatty infiltration. So the ingu- it's sought after, though, isn't it? It is. It is. And um, well, well, and a lot of people go in more intramuscular fat. The better it is, the better eating it is, because the fat con- fat contains the flavour, which it does. But it's kind of, I guess, there's a point there. That's it. That's extreme. Well, I, I, I would, um, I would suggest that eating fully grass fed animals that have fat cap, but but less intramuscular fat, is more ideal. Mm. Um, and that is exactly what what the inguni have, and that's what w- would happen if you eat venison or any kind of wild caught game. Is that there's um, there's a fat cap, which is subcutaneous fat, but there's very little uh, intramuscular fat. Um, and I'm I'm going to be in partnership with with Jake and some other farmers to to get some testing data, so we can back up um, or to really get insight into the health benefits of eating fully grass fed beef over um, over the commodity beef. 
Talk about health. Tell us about Quantum Health Summit. Yeah, so so that's a partnership uh, with a couple of other doctors, uh, Dr. Pran Yoganathan, who you've interviewed, and Dr. Jalal uh, Khan, who is a Sydney dentist and quantum health uh, practitioner. So the the idea of quantum health is uh, one that emphasizes mitochondria and it emphasizes the circadian rhythm and it uses physics and the, the principles of physics uh, to kind of explain but also optimize health. So it'll be a, a one-day event on the Walkie Farm uh, November the 5th and there'll be a, a range of speakers and we're going to be giving people insight into how they can optimize health from from a quantum point of view. And uh, the, I guess the tenets are the, the light, light, water, magnetism. Again, these are things that um, Dr. Jack Cruz has talked about in, in depth, but it's a it's just a slightly different way of approaching health that is, um, it, it seems to be uh, more fundamental than, than merely looking only at, at a dietary approach. So uh, for people who are interested, um, it, it's going to be a pretty pretty interesting event. Magnetism. Look, that's not um, something that I have delved deep into. But again, it's the this idea that um, on a sub 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 subcellular level, um, the operation and the uh, the way mitochondria function is um, influenced by by magnetism and. Uh, Again, it's not not a strong point of mine. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I won't talk on it myself. But uh, for those interested, come along to and hear uh, Dr. Jalal um, explain how that's relevant to health. There is something in the ionisation of water, and certainly running water through a magnet, uh, and, and and the natural flow of water through a, through, a, through a river and the wave you know, action on a beach uh, ionises the water and you know, gives it a um, a negative charge. Which is the structure of water that the body best or most can best utilize water as a as a as the many many function you know functioning functional um, ingredients in one's body. So um, there's a fair bit in that, isn't it? The water structure and and uh, and you know you can have um, structured water or non-structured water and different devices to do it, and there's natural processes. But there's that's it's fascinating world, yeah. isn't it? And crux of the matter is that get into a natural body of water, go swimming in a lake, go swimming in a river, go swimming in the ocean. Mm. Um, if you find a clear spring, you know, drink out of it. Uh, you don't need. We don't need to know the the physics to benefit from from that. There's a lot of you know the, the um, Emoto. What's his name? The Japanese fellow who you know throws water and the intention and the good, the bad, and so on. Look, I'll put that in the show notes too. Mm. Uh, and there's a lady in New Zealand doing some great work there too. Um, uh, I can't remember her name, but she's doing some fascinating stuff. With um, seen her on Instagram with uh, a technique of of freezing water that she's using with um, some clients, and like it is irrefutable the images that are produced, um, and and referring to different words and different. Thoughts and a, and and like photos, putting the photo of a dog underneath. Oh, it's fascinating stuff. Putting a photo of a dog, and they did it in the case of like grieving, you know, people grieving the loss of a dog, or just an experiment experimenting with it. But putting the picture of the dog under the under the dish, right, for you know, thirty seconds, and having a pure intention about what you're doing, taking the photo of a, photo away, and then putting it in the freezer and coming out, and it looks 
it's not like a, 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 a drawn over the top of. It's not like a, a one for one kind of thing, but it is undeniable uh, the the image of a dog that looks remarkably like the one that was in the thing. And just even the the the, the thinking and the thoughts around when you hold holding that dish, um, fascinating stuff. I just can't. I'll put her in the in the in the show notes. Yeah. Um, Definitely interested in reading more about. Oh that. no, she's fantastic work. Um, now, Max, conscious of the time, we've got a little Q and A to do after this, and then you're going to have a chat with me, or me, you, or going to interview. That's the next little bit we're going to do. Um, so, for those who want to know the the probing questions that I ask Max in this next Q and A session, you'll have to just join it to our pod, uh, Patreon community, charlieart.com.au. Um, for ten dollars a month, you get videos and this and that and transcriptions and um, I'm hoping that we are giving the podcast members everything that they uh, – we'll actually be giving the podcast um, – the Patreon members a um, uh, a discount to the webinar series that we're launching. Very Actually, when this comes out, we'll, we might even be in the webinar series. Um, so I'm not sure what point there is in saying it. But there is going to be a farm tour on the 13th of no, of um, October at Hannah Minow. It is part of the web series, but we're probably going to open that up to the public to buy tickets to come along to a feast. Um, the idea at this point is we're sitting here in June, so I'm hoping by then the same plan is going to is going to come to fruition with a with a chef or or to to cook her some lovely um, grass fed meats and produce and showcase a bit of things, plant a few trees perhaps, and do a biodynamic um, uh, a biodynamic um, bit of a demo, and also some of the presenters of our webinar series. Um, are going to be on farm, on site, talking about this stuff. So we've got – I'm going to get this all right now. Um, Sheree Gooding is going to be talking – Dr. Sheree Gooding talking about animal health. Um, Cindy O'Meara is going to be talking about human health. Um, uh, Kim Dean is talking about farm finances. Um, Nicole Masters is talking about soil. Brian Warburg is going to be talking about um, grazing and plants. And Stuart Andrews is going to be talking about – um, uh, hydrology and um, uh, natural sequence farming, and oh, I'm forgetting one there. That's terrible. Um, oh, uh, and start kicking it off with um, uh, Katie Zern is going to be talking about visions and goal setting. Seven weeks, and then the eighth week is going to be a bit of a panel discussion. Max, that's been a wonderful yarn, um, and I look forward to having a bit more of a chat in a minute and continuing this. Discussions dipping in and out of this over the next few years. Yeah, thank you. The rest Fantastic. of our lives, Max. Fantastic, Charlie. Yeah. And um, I'm going to try and get myself down there on the fifth of November. By sounds of that, looks great. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much. It's been a fascinating discussion. Cheers. And next week on the Regenerative Journey, I interview Peter Challender down there. He's west west of uh, Wagga. It's it's the fourth and final. In between uh, Highland Beef, little mini episode, we did it on the Zoom, so I didn't get to check out his 900 acres down there west of Wagga, which would have been amazing. I hear it's a, it's incredible. He has just he's, he's a cattle breeder amongst many other things. He was um, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll keep all the bang bang on about Peter till the intro of his actual episode, but had a lovely chat. Very interesting guy, and uh, it was yeah. I'll get to his farm one day. It just sounds fascinating the way he's, his journey's taken the last few years. He's bought the farm. Uh, using regenerative practices there to um, improve the resilience and no doubt the quality of the cattle. He's now breeding there and uh, involved with Hot Beef. 
Peter Challender on the regenerative journey next week. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.